Hi, I'm Carmen LeBurge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge. Inspiring you to bring God back into the conversation of the day. This is Mornings with Carmen LeBurge on Faith Radio. If we're gonna fly, we fly like Well, good morning, good morning, good morning. It is the 25th of August, 2022. I'm Carmen LeBurge. You are listening to Mornings with Carmen on the Faith Radio Network. So thank you so much for including me in your day. We're trying to bring the mind of Christ to bear on what's going on in the world around us. And we are saturating our lives with the scriptures of the Old and New Testament. We are in the Word of God in order that when we get out there into the world that God so loves and we get squeezed, what comes out of us um, is not... You know, mm-hmm, our own um, our own vinegariness, but uh, grace and truth. That's what we're seeking to pour forth uh, to others. I mean, you know, people don't need just a piece of our mind. They need the very piece of the mind of Christ. So let's prepare to give it to them. Today's Growing Your Faith verse of the day comes from Proverbs 23, verses 17 and 18. Don't envy sinners, but always continue to fear the Lord. You will be rewarded for this. Your hope will not be disappointed. The last part of that um, brought me up, you know, short, because I think that the only way that our hope is disappointed is if our hope is misplaced. The only way our hope could be disappointed is if our hope has been misplaced. So let me ask you this morning, where have you placed your hope? Bob was um, unsatisfied with what his parents had, and he placed his hope in a future that he was certain he could attain. He was certain of a future um, where he was like the people he saw driving fancy cars or going on vacations to the beach, people who always looked like the people that he saw on social media. And in that future, Bob thought, or in the future, Bob thought, I'm going to live like that. And that's where Bob put his hope. He started striving in athletics and school and spending as much time as he could rubbing up against those people that he wanted to be like in the future. And it worked to a point. But you know what? There was always someone who was a little bit better at baseball or a little bit better at math or a little bit better at getting the girls that Bob wanted to date. Bob's future focus kept him striving through college and into a career and into a marriage and into fatherhood. And although he attained significant wealth and earning potential and club memberships and a house on the beach... Bob couldn't stop striving because, you know what, there was always somebody who was a little bit ahead of him. How could he catch them? How could he pass them? Bob continued to put his hope in a future that was always moving away from him. You ever feel like Bob? Have you misplaced your hope in a future that you can't catch because it's the future The future does become the present before we know it. And, of course, there's always a new future then, which means the place of your hope has moved on if what you're hoping in is the future. 
So hope that is always out of reach is ultimately a temporary hope because it evaporates with the passage of time. So you have to hope in that which is real and substantial and eternal. Yeah, it's future-oriented, but it also pervades the present. My future hope, my eternal hope, is based in a reality that pervades the present. It's a hope in Christ. It's redemptive hope. And I can testify to the fact that that hope, the hope in the Lord, never disappoints. Never disappoints. Do you hope in Christ? Or is your hope tethered to something temporary that will ultimately not deliver? Jesus reminds us to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and everything else is going to be added unto us. That was the lived experience of Solomon. He set his life at God's liberty and he sought God's heart and he asked for God's wisdom and he recalled God's goodness to his father David. And then he lived with a wide open expectation that God would deliver on the promises that he had made. And guess what? We even have an advantage over Solomon who gives us this proverb today because we have Jesus and he's a living hope. Next up, we're going to talk with Ben Johnson. We're going to survey some of the headlines of the day. He's in Ohio, so we're going to talk about what's going on there in terms of the teacher strike. I'm also going to ask Ben to um, to comment on statements made by the uh, Attorney General of Minnesota who has issued a consumer warning against crisis pregnancy centers. Yeah, that's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. This is my right, a right given by God, to live a free life, to live in freedom. Joining us now, Ben Johnson. He's The Rights Writer. You can find him as The Rights Writer on Twitter. You can also find him at The Washington Stand. Good morning, Ben. Good morning, Carmen. So let's um let's jump into this um this issue in Minnesota related to the Attorney General Keith Ellison who has issued a consumer warning um against pri- uh, against crisis pregnancy centers. Can you can you tell us what's going on here? Right. Uh Keith Ellison as you mentioned, Attorney General of uh, the state of Minnesota, uh, issued a consumer alert telling people that they needed to be aware of pregnancy uh, resource centers, of pro-life women's centers. Uh, because they are deceptive, according to him. They, they engage in deceptive practices. And uh, there, there uh, is a significant um, discussion here about the fact that, uh, according to him, 90% of, um, of CPCs don't have uh, doctors who are on staff. Uh, 80% don't have registered nurses on staff, according to him. And uh, for someone who is the self-appointed guardian of all things that are factual, uh, this sort of revels in misinformation. Uh, if you look at the actual statistics, uh, let's let's say that the, the, there are statistics in here that are cherry-picked. It's true that most uh, CPCs do not have on-staff doctors and nurses. That's because those doctors and nurses volunteer their time. They don't take money that is being donated so that they can channel the maximum amount possible to the women who come into the clinics. Uh, Instead of dedicating that money to paying doctors who are on staff uh, and paying those who are are performing these these medical uh, uh, 
procedures. Instead, the money goes to diapers, baby formula, baby clothes. It goes to serving people. But the vast majority do have access to licensed medical staff. Uh, so uh, there are 2,700 uh, pregnancy health centers across the country. Uh, there are about uh, 70,000, 67,000 total people, both staff and volunteers who work there. And there are 10,000 licensed medical professionals who are there. Now, only uh, 3,800 of them are paid, actually a little bit less than that. Uh, the vast majority, more than two-thirds, are volunteers but they are licensed medical staff. Nonetheless, uh, it's really irrelevant whether they're drawing a paycheck or not. Uh, mm. All of these so-called facts and figures are coming from the abortion lobby to try and smear the uh, pregnancy uh, crisis centers. And uh, Keith Ellison is doing their bidding. Just a reminder to those um, listening, we talked with Angela Franey of the Abrea Pregnancy Resources um, about attacks on their clinics um, in uh, in central Minnesota, um, in in uh, Minneapolis and in St. Paul. Um, and we also talked with her about the practices of the Abrea Pregnancy Resource Centers. And we talked about um, the things that they offer. And we talked about um, the fact that they tell clients all their options. They actually, you know, are very forthright about um, abortion access and what happens in an abortion and the various types of abortion. Um, and so in terms of at least, you know, if I'm going to cherry pick information in the same way Keith Ellison did, you know, I'm going to say, hey, if you go to Abria, you're going to get all the information. They are not going to offer to perform an abortion because that's not their, uh, you know, their ethic and that's not in the range of services they provide. But they're certainly going to inform women of all of their options. I think that when we talk about what people are being told um, I'm wondering if you go to Planned Parenthood, if they tell you where the, you know, where all the resources are in the community to support you in having a child and choosing to have your child, if they tell you where to get free diapers and a free car seat and free medical care, um, if you choose to have your baby, like, right, because wouldn't that be a consumer alert as well? You would think so. But uh, for, for some reason, Keith Ellison, who, of course, was formerly a congressman, as, as uh, many of your listeners are well aware and uh, had a, a long relationship with Planned Parenthood, has not issued that kind of a warning about the limited resources that Planned Parenthood offers. If you look at Planned Parenthood's annual report, basically they offer abortion and contraception. That's, that's essentially what they exist to do. Crisis pregnancy centers exist, and they tell women of all of their options, but they don't exist to perform abortions. Uh, they can find that um, those, those services elsewhere, uh, and uh, hopefully they will not if they understand the information that's coming forward, uh, both about how it affects their health, obviously about how it affects the life of the child, and ultimately about how it affects their mindset long term. And in many of these uh, pregnancy centers, thankfully, they tell them the way that this will impact their relationship with our Lord Jesus Christ, that this is something that is uh, in the scripture. It's described as a sin. It's not something that uh, cannot be forgiven, but it is something that everyone will have on their conscience. It must be repented of uh, before uh, before they can have peace of mind and a healthy, faithful walk with our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I'm glad there are ministries like that, uh, both that care for the mother and the child and things like Rachel's Vineyard that help women who have had an abortion come to mm -hmm. fullness and healing emotionally uh, with the burden that they're carrying around. 
Mm, that's so good. Um, we're going to continue our conversation with Ben Johnson here in just a minute. I'm going to ask him to bring us up to speed on the teacher strike. He is in Ohio where that is taking place. And then, yes, we're going to um, we're going to touch on the uh, the question, the conversation, the announcement of federal student loan forgiveness. But, um, you know, I'm going to put up a big warning sign because I don't think it's actually going to happen. Just because the president says something doesn't make it true. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Thanks so much for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen. As you know, this is a rebroadcast of the live radio show we do on the Faith Radio Network every day. There is a lot going on at Faith Radio. Tons of free resources waiting for you to take advantage of and share with others at MyFaithRadio.com. Be sure to check us out on social media as well. Um, This is a community of believers, and we gather together here, and we all need prayer. And, well, we'd love to pray for you. The Faith Radio team is serious about prayer. We pray for specific requests every single week when we gather on Tuesdays and Thursdays as a staff. So share your prayer request with us anonymously and securely on our website at MyFaithRadio.com, and then be assured of our prayers for you in the Spirit of Christ. Check it all out at MyFaithRadio.com. Ohio teachers are on strike and say they won't end their strike until um, there are serious improvements in classroom environment, um, which is a little hard to imagine is going to be possible if teachers don't return to school. Ben Johnson, who is in Ohio, what is going on and and what's going to happen with, I mean, another year of lost education for the children of Ohio? Yeah, uh, they're already behind. The uh, first day of school was yesterday, or it would have been if it weren't for the uh, teacher strike in our state's capital. Uh, Very large, expansive school system. And uh, the uh, strike is going to go on through the end of the week now. Overnight, there was an update that the uh, teachers union and the school district have reached what they call a conceptual agreement for teachers Mm. to return to class on Monday. Hopefully, the conceptual agreement becomes a concrete agreement that uh, results in actual human beings sitting down at desks and learning. But uh, that's that's what's going on here. Uh, it's true that uh, some of the school facilities certainly are outdated. Uh, there were about nine schools that uh, still don't have air conditioning uh, in, in you know, very oppressive heat uh, at this time of year. But, uh, you know, this this is something that uh, this is one of the reasons that Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who was as big a supporter of unions as you could get, believed there should not be any public sector unions, including for public schools and and, uh, federal workers and so on. He said when when uh, a union is formed, they're constantly trying to negotiate with their employer for better terms and conditions the way that FDR saw it. The employer, in the case of um, federal workers or for public workers, are taxpayers. And taxpayers have already said what they want those conditions to be, so it would be wrong to advocate for something even higher than what the democratic process would support. Uh, this is especially true when it comes to uh, to teachers and so on. Uh, we saw the red wave just before the pandemic. We might have forgotten about those days, but there were a wave of teacher strikes. And uh, while those were celebrated by the media, Meanwhile, you have students at home, uh, parents who are scrambling in order to come up with daycare solutions or something or missing work as a result of this. And students are missing out on class times. We found out during the pandemic, one day of missed class ends up resulting in one day of learning loss. It's a one-to-one ratio. 
And so when people are putting their own concerns ahead of the learning of people who are already behind uh, and during, you know, the reading scores were falling before the pandemic. Uh, obviously, we've had a, a approximately three months worth of learning loss minimum uh, on average for the average student in public schools where there was a three month lockdown uh, and in other places, even more than that. This only compounds the hurt and the harm that are coming to America's students nationwide in the public school system. It's a reason that uh, one one thing to remember is that homeschools don't go on strike. So that may be the solution ultimately mm-hmm. uh, to this crisis. Yeah, it just is a real challenge for people who depend on public school for you know a myriad of reasons, and and certainly mm-hmm. for those who are not in a position to homeschool. Um, I mean, the, the burden this places on single moms in particular, I just it, it's just really hard for me to imagine. You know, they they planned they planned what was going to happen going back to school this fall, um, counting on, you know, taxpayer funded publicly offered education. And that's not happening. And so, you know, they're being failed for sure. I mean, kids are being failed, but but also yeah. parents who, who are depending on this are being failed. Hey, I want to spend a couple of minutes talking with you about um President Joe Biden's announcement that he intends to forgive $10,000 in federal student debt for most borrowers um, and uh, canceling up to $20,000 uh, for those who received Pell Grants. Nearly 45 percent of those borrowers or some like 20 million people would have their debt fully canceled, um, according to the White House. Um, I do think it's important for people to be reminded the Biden administration has already canceled some $32 billion dollars of the $1.6 trillion in outstanding federal student debt simply by expanding existing forgiveness programs for public sector workers, disabled borrowers, and students um, who were uh, defrauded by for-profit colleges. And so um, this $300 billion scheme, which taxpayers are going to bear the burden of, is on top of $32 billion that um, the Biden administration has already uh, accomplished through other through other programs. Um, your your thoughts, Ben? Yeah. Uh, well, this this is a, a major concern, and I, I have a couple of pieces going up at the Washington Stand, Lord willing, a little bit later today that that deal with the moral aspect of this. Obviously, there's a moral hazard uh, to any bailout, which is that it, it encourages bad behavior, discourages responsible behavior uh, on the part of borrowers. But uh, the piece that very few people have talked about is the way that uh, federal policy essentially set people up for default from the very beginning, Uh, beginning in 1994 and then uh, under the Obama-Biden administration in 2009 and 10, uh, and and then it went into effect in 2014. They changed the way that student loans were paid. In the old days, it was sort of like a mortgage or a car payment. You had a fixed payment for a certain period of time. And uh, beginning in 94 and then again, it really went into hyperdrive in 2014. They had what they called an income-based repayment plan, which is you would pay 10% of your college post uh, college graduate discretionary income, which is uh, any, anything you make above 150% of the federal poverty level right out of the door, uh, and you would pay that back. Now, the problem is the CBO, the Congressional Budget Office, looked at this and they said, if you do what uh, the administration tells you to do, to pay 10% of your post-discretionary income, not only will you never pay back your loan, but in fact, you can't even pay the interest on it. The payments are so low that you actually end up further in debt after 10 or 20 years of paying these. And so they, they looked at the number of people who were, were making these payments. 
75% of them had a greater student loan debt after making 10 years of payment. I'm sorry, after making uh, six years of payments than they did when they started out. Now, that's that's immoral. That's a that's a debt trap. Uh, the Bible says that uh, the servant is the slave or the, the servant to the lender. Uh, the borrower ends up uh, essentially serving the terms of the lender. And then uh, what essentially what these policies did, they took people, showed them that it was absolutely hopeless for them to ever get out of debt, no matter how much they paid, uh, because they were following the rules that the federal government laid out, made the debt larger, and then took that enlarged debt and handed it off to U.S. taxpayers, because after 20 years, you could discharge your debt. So they set them up for failure. And Biden yesterday made this even worse because he increased discretionary income to 225 percent of uh, of the federal poverty level, reduced payments from 10 percent to 5 percent and said you could write them off after 10 years instead of 20. Mm. So this is this is a, a wrong headed policy that sets people up for failure. It sets uh, the policy up uh, so that the federal government ultimately is losing money on student loans. You know, only only the federal government can take uh, an industry like federal student loans that are galloping ahead, student tuition uh, four times ahead of the rate of inflation over the last four decades and lose money on it. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's a mess. I, you know, I would I would like to say that I don't think it's ultimately going to happen because I'm sure someone is going to bring a case and the courts are going to say that the executive branch doesn't have the right to spend this kind of money, taxpayer money, that only Congress has the right, um, at which point I expect the Biden administration to point to COVID as, you know, this this national emergency, um, and then for others to say, yeah, that's not really so. I mean, it's we're not in a national COVID emergency anymore. So um, anyway, well, as, I, as I guess I'm fact, hoping – Yeah. go ahead. Please, please. I'm, I'm hoping that the courts stop this from happening. But people are asking important, good questions about it. I think the moral conversation is a really important one. Um, so thank you for uh, your thoughts on that. I really I appreciate that that thread line. I, I appreciate that. And, and you know, just to, to pull your thread line, I think that legally you're correct. It depends, obviously, on which judge you end up before. But uh, the Department of Education uh, in the waning days of the Trump administration under Betsy DeVos, actually issued a legal opinion. She she asked, would I have the right to do this? And they said, absolutely not. As you pointed out, all spending bills have to come from Congress. Actually, the federal government has a duty to uh, collect debts. But the Biden administration pointed to COVID. I think that's going to be hard to sustain when they just issued a guidance that dropped social distancing and quarantining. Uh, it, it's going to be difficult to say that people couldn't work and pay back their student debts. But we'll see what judges say. Yeah, and the job market is certainly such that if um, if somebody needs a job, there's one to be had. So, um, hey, thank or you five. as always. Yeah, or five. <laughs> thank you as always so much. Um, we appreciate our time with you. Appreciate your perspective. Hey, you guys be watching uh, at, at WashingtonStand.com for Ben's articles on this. They should be posted later today. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LaBurge, and this is Faith Radio. All right, we um we have a really fun conversation teed up next. Jerry Jenkins, who you whose name you absolutely um certainly recognize. Um he's written more than 200 books, some of them nonfiction, most of them really good fiction. He uh he is the dad of Dallas Jenkins, um who is the 
man behind The Chosen TV series. And so we're going to talk a little bit about that. We're also going to talk about Jerry's new book, The Dead Sea Conspiracy, which is a part of the Dead Sea Chronicles series. And yes, yes, we're giving away books. So um, so listen, uh, listen up and find out how you can join not only um, uh, Jerry online. We're going to talk about that as well if you're an aspiring writer, but you're going to find out how to get in the drawing for the books we're giving away. Jerry Jenkins up next here on Mornings with Carmen. It's like the brightest sunrise waiting on the other side on the darkest night. Don't ever lose hope. Hold on. Jerry Jenkins. I probably need only say his name for you to just simply light up and tune in a little more intently. Um, no doubt you have read something that Jerry Jenkins has written. I think we are going to be talking today about book number 202. On the list of things that uh, that Jerry has published, many people haven't read 200 books, let alone um, well. And the and the group of people who have written 200 books is really really small club. Jerry Jenkins, welcome back to Mornings with Carmen. Thanks so much, Carmen. Good to be with you. Yeah, it's wonderful to have you. Um, we're going to actually talk about several of your recent books because I don't think you and I have had an opportunity to talk about the second book in your chosen series. Um, and so um, we talked about I Have Called You by Name, which I think is the first novel related to the first season of The Chosen, the TV series. And then The Chosen Come and See is related to season two. So remind people what you're doing in these novels that really um, that really follow along and track with what's happening in The Chosen TV series, but then also adding a layer to it. Yeah, I, I helped my son Dallas get started in the in the movie business when he got out of college. We had our own little production company, but this project is all his own. And so I feel like I've sort of pressed my nose up against the glass and asked if I could play too. And uh, he was happy to let me do that. Um, writing a novel to go along with each season is a little bit backwards. Usually uh, such shows are based off books. Well, this show obviously is based off the Bible. And the novels are based off the show. So we're, we're kind of doing it backwards. But what happens is I, I take those uh, episodes and I watch them at least 20 times each. And I have to say, I mean, I've always thought everything Dallas did was brilliant, but this time I was right. And uh, so now what I do is um, uh, as I'm watching those, I, I find that I never get tired of one scene and I'm, I'm moved by all of them. And um, so I try to add more backstory, more inner monologue, uh, sometimes even different characters to, to add to the story so that the novels could actually stand alone even if the show didn't exist. And yet people who've seen the show, when they get to the parts in there that are, that are seen on screen, those are mirrored pretty exactly because uh, it always frustrates me when I'm watching a, a movie or a TV show um, that I, where I've read the book or vice versa um, and they don't, they don't jibe at least of what I've seen. So I want that to, to jab exactly, but then uh, to be able to add all that extra added value to it. Yeah, I love the um, the inner monologue layer. Um, I think that, you know, in terms of bringing the Bible to life, which is surely one of your gifts, um, 
that's that's the feel of um of these books that track along with the chosen. So again, we're talking with Jerry Jenkins. We are talking about um, the series of novels that he is writing to complement the chosen TV series, which if you are not familiar with it, um, you're virtually alone in the world. Uh, and so we want you to be familiar with it because we certainly love it. And so, Jerry, maybe um, remind us where we are. Um, you know, right now we are um, in season three. It's just started. Um, but I'm, I feel like 2022 is a big year for the chosen TV series. It's just, you know, it, it's not a one off anymore. Like it's a it's a going Jesse. Yeah, it has really exploded. Um, the goal of Dallas and his team, which is now well over 200 people, cast and crew and uh, and staff, uh, is to reach a billion people around the world with this. And they're they're already closing in uh, on on I think it's 400 million views at this point. And um, it's it's just been amazing. It's it's been shown in every country of the world, in uh, in more than fifty languages. And uh, you're right, we're in the middle of of uh, season three. They're they're filming, and they've run into all kinds of problems down in Texas. Dallas moved his family down there. They're building sets down there, uh, so he's close to the set and can get home and and spend that time with the family that he cherishes. Uh, he hated having to to travel. They used to live in Illinois, and he would travel to Utah and Texas to shoot. So at least he's close. But the weather's been terrible. COVID has hit the cast. When they miss three days of shooting, it costs them about a half a million dollars just mm. because they still have to pay everybody, and then right. they have to reschedule that shooting, and so all that goes into it. Um, but so I'm I'm building novel three right now based on the scripts rather than, than seeing scenes. They, I've seen a few scenes that they've shot, but um, they're really behind the eight ball trying to get this, this season out uh, by the end of the year. Mm. Well, we'll be, we'll be praying right along um, with you for them um, in the midst of that. Jerry, let's, um, let's pivot and let's talk about another book series that you are in the midst of not only writing, but releasing. So this is the, um, this is the Dead Sea Chronicles and, a couple of years ago, um, we got Dead Sea Rising, and then right now, the brand new one that we're going to talk about today is Dead Sea Conspiracy. So let's talk about um, talk about the series, uh, the Dead Sea Chronicles, and then we'll dive into the Dead Sea Conspiracy specifically. Yeah, this was a, an idea that actually came from the publisher. You know, often I turn down ideas that come from publishers because. Most of us novelists are kind of uh, self-possessed and we have our own ideas and we, and, and I don't have enough years left for all the ideas I have, I think. But uh, they asked if, if, um, if I'd be interested in writing uh, some novels based on an archaeologist uh, as a main character. And it really intrigued me. And I thought, yeah, I would try this, but you need to know, uh, of course, they knew well because they've published me before that I'm not a scholar and I'm not a theologian. I'm a storyteller. I mean, I happen to be a believer and I, I care about these things, but I said I would need a great consultant uh, for the biblical parts and for the archaeology stuff. And they found the perfect guy. Dr. Craig Evans is a prophet, Houston Baptist Seminary. And um, he's, he's the smartest guy in the room, no matter what the room, but he's got this ability to keep the cookies on the lower shelf where lay people like me can <laughs> reach him. And so I can ask him anything about, you know, when I'm writing, um, what I do is I interweave stories in these novels where every other chapter 
goes 4,000 years into the past into Mesopotamia where Abraham was born. And then we tell the contemporary story of this archaeologist, Nicole Berman, um, who is digging for, for evidence of Abraham's life and, uh, and trying to find something that might help unify or at least ease the tensions among the major religions of the world, uh, Islam and Christianity and, and Judaism. Um, and I think the fun part of this is that I give Nicole Berman several obstacles against the, her ability to, to have a dig in Saudi Arabia. She wants to dig there. Well, that's a Muslim country. And so she has going against her, her age, she's in her late 30s, so she's young. Her gender, obviously, she's female. Uh, her religion, she's not only a Christian, but she's a Messianic Jew. So the, the Muslims would be very suspicious of what she might find and what it might say about their scripture versus our scripture. And uh, and I think she, she deduces that they may... Th- see her as an easy mark. If she finds something that's that might damage their views, they could just quash it and she'd be easy to deal with. So that's the setup for the contemporary story. And then as I say, every other chapter, I'm jumping back 4,000 years and telling about Abraham growing up. And uh, I think the, the funnest part of, the, of book two um, is that I've discovered that as long as people lived in the Old Testament, you know, Noah living hundreds of years, Methuselah, 900 plus years, all that, their lives actually overlap Abraham's. I don't know if I ever realized that before I did the research on this. And so I have young Abraham actually going to Seth's home and hearing firsthand stories of what it was like on the ark. Uh, so there's all kinds of fun in, in, uh, in book two. Yeah, I it has me um looking forward to book 3, but let's just uh let's stick with book 2 here for just a minute. If you're intrigued and you're a person who already loves Jerry Jenkins and you say to yourself, "I want to read Dead Sea Conspiracy." We're giving away a few copies today, so text the word book to 877-933-2484. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LeBurge and this is Faith Radio. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen. As you know, this is a rebroadcast of the live radio show carried on the Faith Radio Network. There's a lot going on at Faith Radio, tons of free resources just waiting for you and for you to share with others at MyFaithRadio.com. How does that all happen? Well, it happens through listener support. So Faith Radio, Mornings with Carmen, all available because of listener support from listeners, well, just like you. If you're a supporter, thank you so very much. If you'd like to become a supporter today, just visit MyFaithRadio.com. And again, thanks for being a part of what we do every day at Mornings with Carmen. I will trust where you lead. I will trust when I can't see. Morning by morning, great is your faithfulness to me. Picking up in our conversation with author Jerry Jenkins, we're talking about his um, his latest work, Dead Sea Conspiracy. We're also talking about the Dead Sea Chronicles, which is the series of novels um, that the Dead Sea Conspiracy is a part of. And um, and we're going to pivot, if it's okay with you, Jerry, and talk about, um, you, you said something here just a minute ago, first of all, that you are a storyteller, and I want you to talk about the power of story and storytelling, particularly for Christians in the culture today. Um, but then I also want to um, want to touch on something else that you you alluded to, and that is, you know, you're getting older, and there should be a generation of writers coming up. And I'd like to talk about 
what you are doing with younger writers as well. So can we have the storyteller conversation first? Sure. Yeah, I, I believe in the power of story, and, and I think Jesus is our example, and you can't get a better example than, than Jesus. His parables, I believe, were fiction, but they were what a lot of people call earthly stories with heavenly meanings. Um, so he would in, invent these scenarios, and uh, some of them may have been based on real events. That's uh, sort of hinted at even in the Chosen uh, TV series. Um, but I think tell, telling a story where you tell the truth with a capital T, even though the, the story itself may be fictitious, uh, is a powerful way to, to com- communicate with people. Uh, the, the biggest struggle for any novelist is to, is to express a message without sounding too sermonic so people don't feel like they're being hit over the head with the theme. The theme should come through uh, between the lines. And a story well told will do the work. So we don't have to, to back out of that and, and apply it to the reader because if the shoe fits, the reader will wear it. So my, my goal and my challenge every time I write a story uh, is to have a deeper meaning and, and give the reader credit for, for being able to get it if the story is well told. You um, encourage others to write. You encourage other writers um, and if no, if you guys haven't visited jerryjenkins.com and you're a writer, um, let me invite you to jerryjenkins.com where there there's a wealth of free resources available. Um, Jerry, you're coming alongside um, other writers and you are encouraging, you're, um, you're sharing lots of information. There's writing tools, there's writing courses. Um, t- talk, talk with me about why you're doing this. I mean, you know, why are you giving it away? Well, I, I don't give it all away. I mean, there's an awful lot of free stuff there. There's something there for everybody of any any budget. There are free blogs and tips and daily things like that. I also have the Jerry Jenkins Writers Guild, which is a subscription-based, you know, monthly thing where I'm teaching. I'm teaching about 2,000 writers online and always open for more. Uh, but the reason I do that is when I was 15, um, a friend of mine who knew I wanted to be a writer when I grew up, and I was already a sports writer at that age, um, he introduced me to a, a freelance Christian writer who wrote sports books and has told two stories and, and was a journalist. And I just wanted to meet the guy. And his name was Jim Hefley. He's, he's in heaven now. But he was so kind to me as a 15-year-old. He didn't just greet me and, and give me my big league moment. He, he stretched that greeting into about an hour and talked shop with me as if I were a colleague. And I remember thinking, I mean, this is a lot of years ago many decades ago. But I remember thinking then, if I ever have any modicum of success as a writer, I want to treat new writers the way Jim Hefley treated me. Well, I have been so blessed in this career and feel like I've I've had, you know, more than a modicum of success. And there's nothing I love more than paying it forward. And and as you imply, restocking the pool of Christian writers. I'm in my 70s now. I'm I'm not going to be here, you know, too many more decades. I'd love to hang around and do what I can, but we need that younger generation to come up. And so I'm welcoming writers of all ages and all levels of of competency because I feel like wherever you are on the spectrum of of writing, I can make you better if you just, you know, let me share what I've learned over, over the years. Yeah, it's so fantastic. So you guys can find that at jerryjenkins.com. Hey, one more thing, um, Jerry. Um, who do you read, and why do you read them? 
Well, I'm I'm really widely read. I, I love, you know, a lot of people are surprised that a, a writer likes electronic books. Um, most people are still favoring, you know, good old fashioned paper, but I like to read several books at a time and they get heavy. <laughs> so I've got about 200 books on my phone and my phone's not any heavier than it used to be. Um, but I like to read, I like to read Rick Bragg, B-R-A-G-G. He was a New York Times columnist, but now writes books just absolutely poetic. And a lot of writers you want to emulate with him. I just surrender. I mean, I'll never be able to write like, but I love to read him. Uh, and I read lots of uh, Christian novelists too. And lots of secular novelists because uh, you need to know what the competition is up to. So I'm reading a lot of nonfiction when I'm writing fiction. And when I'm writing nonfiction, I'm reading fiction just to kind of keep the, um, keep my, my batteries charged. Um, but I, I always tell writers to writers are readers, good writers are good readers, great writers are great readers. So I, I'm reading dozens of books a year and, and really recommend that to writers. Wow. I just, I really appreciate that. Um, thank you so much for who you are and what you do, all the ways you have sown um, so deeply into so many of our lives. Thank you for telling good stories. Thank you for encouraging others to tell stories and then helping us cultivate our ability to tell those stories better and better and better. Um, thank you for, you know, whatever influence you had in your son's life, because obviously um, that's going well. And we really appreciate um, what Dallas is doing and love the chosen TV series and can't wait to follow um, your novels that come out with each season. And so it just, I just have lots of uh, thanks and gratitude for you today, Jerry. So thank you so much. Well, thank you, Carmen. It's always great to be with you. Likewise. Hey, we are giving away copies of Dead Sea Conspiracy today. So if you'd like to enter the drawing for the copies we have available, just text the word book to 877-933-2484. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LaBerge, and this is Faith Radio. Thank you so much um, for sharing your stories on the text line about um, your uh, your experiences right now, um, burdened by extreme debt, um, student debt in particular. Um, so uh, this listener saying, OK, so it's OK to bail out the banks and car companies years ago, but heaven forbid, um, help out individuals struggling to support their families to pay off school loans. So um, let me say this. I am absolutely 100 percent in favor of um, bailing out individuals, individuals, every single one of um, of the comments on the text line related to this. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you and your individual situations. What I don't agree with is, um, you know, waving what, you know, somebody thinks is a magic wand and wiping out the debt uh, of of high income earners. I mean, you know, if, if we're talking about granting debt relief to people whose household income is all the way up to $250,000 a year, it's probably, that's probably a different scenario than the individual situations that, um, that you guys are experiencing. So yes, I 100%, you know, this, this, um, this friend who is saying, you know, my daughter has a full-time job, which she got from going back to school which she got a, a you know a loan in order that she could get a better wage and she works part-time gigs as well. 
Um, and then, you know, she is in an abusive relationship and the the individual um, situation that she's in, I, 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 my heart breaks and I am um, grieved by her individual experience. And I believe there's an individual solution um, to that. And I absolutely think there should be individual um, restructuring of debt. That's the same um, that I would say to the single mom who texted in, um, you know, regarding that what I was doing was preaching about systemic issues um, related to single moms and the teacher strike, uh, the impact of of the teacher strike in Ohio on single moms. Um, and then, you know, feeling like uh, I was then suggesting that single moms who uh, worked instead of sitting on welfare, I'm reading now, and didn't understand the loan process, but were told it was the only way out of poverty, are now in debt to the tune of a mortgage payment um, of $1,000 a month, which probably means you don't have a house. I mean, you're not, you're not owning a house, you're not paying off a mortgage, you're paying off a student loan. Um, and that her loan um, doesn't have a flat interest rate, and so her loan um, has tripled since she took it out and she's a single mom and she's working full time and and on and on and on. I, I get that. I I think everybody who told you um, that this was the right solution, you know, was clearly not looking far enough ahead to how debt in this country um, was going to be inflamed over time um, and and what the relative value of of higher education in some fields actually yields. So I am, first of all, I want you to hear me say, I am, I'm so sorry for what you're experiencing and the debt burden you are under. And I 100% agree that on an individual level, debt needs to be restructured and maybe forgiven. But I don't think that um, a $300 billion taxpayer-funded scheme where your neighbor who didn't go to college um, is now going to be responsible for a debt that you incurred. I, I don't think that that's um, I don't think that's fair either. Um, and I don't think that it's fair that people who paid off their student loans are now going to be required to pay off the, the student loans of others. Do I think that there ought to be some you know Christian scheme out there for um, the elimination of debt? Yeah, that's a great idea. You guys know I'm a huge fan of of RIP medical debt. Um, RIP medical debt. Maybe there could be a scheme through which, and scheme here I'm not using in a, in a, in a pejorative sense. I mean, just saying, you know, a, a methodology, a plan um, could be structured in the same way that people's unpayable medical debt is being paid off across the country um, by the generosity of others through RIP medical debt. Maybe there could be a similar um, process by which um, people unduly burdened by educational debt, that their debt could be paid off by the generosity of others. I'd be in full support um, of such a thing. All right. Well, there you go. So hopefully that was uh, a sufficient back and forth on the on the comments um, online. Again, thank you so much for sharing your stories. Um, and um, yeah, we're going to continue that conversation because obviously it's a robust one. And um, and yeah, and everybody, lots of lots of texts on this this morning. So I will aggregate them and I will um I will I won't let this go. I promise. We'll keep talking about it. Hey, we got another hour of Mornings with Carmen up next. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at myfaithradio.com.